Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you um, that you're that you're here. Um, you are here, and we just recognize you as the God of all creation, the God of our salvation. And we just ask you would help us to see Jesus, no matter how our week went. I pray that you would help increase our faith uh, in the person of your Son. So, Holy Spirit, would you do that today in each of our hearts? Open our, open our minds to be able to receive from you. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. All right, so this morning we conclude Matthew 13. We're going to end our little mini-series that we've been doing uh, through Matthew's Gospel. If you've noticed, we've, we've kind of broken these up in little mini-series. And this one has been on the various responses to the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so in many of these vignettes, Matthew has been giving us from Jesus' life, the way in which people respond to Him and that they all respond to Him in different ways. Some respond with faith. Sometimes it's big faith or great faith. Sometimes it's small. Others are offended by Him. Others just don't believe. And some, like the religious leaders, conspire to destroy Him. So again, you can be almost anything toward Jesus Christ except neutral. He's not the kind of person that we just pass on the street and don't even think about anymore. What he does, what he says, who he is, demands our response. And so we've really been trying to see that specifically. And so I hope that you've been asking yourself, how have I been responding to Jesus at this time? So how have I right now in your life been responding to Jesus? What's, what's been your attitude toward the stories about Him and what you've been hearing? Where is your heart at this moment toward Jesus with the place you are at in your life today? How do your circumstances, how do your feelings, your emotions, your, your job, your bank account, your mental health, physical health, the core of inside of who you are right now, how does that relate to Jesus? Today we're going to look at a group of people who responded to Jesus with unbelief. With unbelief. And therefore did not receive many of the benefits of His ministry. Faith has come up a lot in Matthew. It's come up many times. Some of them have been positive. Like we said, some of them have been negative in those responses. But faith is the positive response toward the person of Jesus. And so in this passage, we're going to be confronted with the flip side, with how unbelief plays out in the way a community responds to Jesus and then how Jesus responds to that community. So let's look at that. Matthew thirteen fifty three to 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense to him. But Jesus said to him, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there 
because of their unbelief. God's Word to us this morning. So sometimes I was thinking that us regular churchgoers, uh, that we can come to a Scripture like this and think that it's not really for us. But the Scripture we read this morning reminds us that we also need to examine ourselves. And what I mean by the Scripture this morning is the one that Pastor Bob read this morning. Take care, brothers. So notice, brothers. He's talking church people. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So, the Holy Spirit's calling us to wake up from the evil of unbelief. And I was thinking, we usually think of evil as um, terrorism, murder, molestation. Those things are evil. But unbelief, an unbelieving heart is, is evil? That's what the Holy Spirit says. The root of every sin is unbelief. So we must always be on our guard against the evil of avoiding, minimizing, and downplaying Jesus' message to us, always. Hebrews goes on to call us to faith today. says it twice. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, it's got the quotes in there, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So that's what we're going to do this morning. That's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm using this report of Jesus' homecoming at the end of Matthew 13, as a megaphone to our hearts, to my heart, to believe today, not the day before, not the day after, but to believe right now that Jesus is the Christ, that He is our only hope. And we also learn from that verse that you and I are to encourage one another. And that's some of what we're doing every Sunday. When we hear the preaching of the Word of God, um, that is a way in which our hearts are being woken up to faith because the devil is sneaky and unbelief is sneaky sin is deceitful and so we need god's voice unbelief wants to tune that out faith is a somewhat popular subject in our culture especially especially if it's spoken in, in terms of general things not specifically as long as faith doesn't have dogma attached to it, any vague spirituality will work. Any, any faith, in general terms, is acceptable. It's seen as an important part of being human, unless you're an atheist, and there's definitely a rising tide. But for many, some kind of faith is seen as just you know, an important part of, of being human, of human development. It can even be seen as, as cool to have your own faith, whatever that might be. Neuroscience has shown how faith can do wonders for health. So the scientific community even shows it. A 2016 article for National Geographic had the title, Unlocking the Healing Power of You. And then the subtitle, Science is Showing that How You Feel Isn't Just About What You Eat or Do or Think, It's About What You Believe. The writer goes on to say, whether it takes the form of a touch of the Holy Spirit at a Florida revival meeting 
or a dip in the water of the Ganges, the healing power of belief is all around us. Studies suggest that regular religious services may improve the immune system, decrease blood pressure, and add years to our lives. End quote. So, scientific community, National Geographic article recently recognizing the benefits of belief in general terms, no matter where that belief might be. All of us have probably seen news clips or articles showing how faith can bring healing. Um, Noted New Testament scholar Craig Keener, he has a big, thick, two-volume academic work called Miracles, the Credibility of the New Testament Accounts, and he lists an array of these kind of outside, outside of the New Testament clips and articles. He says, the National Institute of Health revealed that prayer was the most common among complementary or alternative therapies employed by Americans. BusinessWire reports that 73% of doctors believe that miracles can happen today. And in the same study that more than half pray for their patients and have seen results that they consider miraculous. Likewise, a poll concerning pain control produced by USA Today, ABC News, and Stanford University Medical Center found that more than half of respondents used prayer. According to the poll, of those who used prayer, 90% found it effective and 51 highly effective. For whatever reasons, the only other therapy, this was interesting, with comparable results was prescription drugs. 89% effective, 51% very effective for those. So, the role of faith and its benefits in our human existence is not a fringe idea or even an explicitly Christian idea. We need to understand that. Many of these, of these kinds of things and studies can, can get us Christian folk excited Um, and even help justify our belief in Jesus in some way. But the problem with that is that sometimes it treats the experience of having faith alone as the point of Christianity, just faith as a substance. Certain segments of Christianity can treat faith as a kind of magic power that in and of itself is the point. If we had more faith in our lives, our lives would be more significant. If we had more faith in our bodies, we'd be healthier If we had more faith, we'd reach our full potential. And all of these things aren't necessarily bad and sometimes can actually be true, have kernels of truth in them. But faith in the New Testament, faith in the Word of God, and specifically the Gospel we've been looking at, is much more concerned with about what faith is connected to, the person faith is connected to. The presence of faith alone as a human power is not as important as the object to which a person's faith is connected to. So faith, faith may be one of the Gospels of American church culture. It's one of the Gospels, but it's not the Gospel. It's not the Gospel. Faith is our believing response to the Gospel. The Gospel is Jesus. The good news is Christ. And so the great sin that Jesus' hometown has in the great sin of every single human being is not the presence or absence of faith itself, but the presence of unbelief toward the person of Jesus as He defines Himself to be. So, the text. The response of the men and women in Nazareth to Jesus is demonstrated in three ways. They respond to Him in three ways. Astonishment in verse 54 
offense in verse 57 and unbelief in 58. And actually all of those work together in harmony. One of the frightening things, one of the scary things in this text is that you can be amazed by Jesus the teacher, by Jesus the miracle worker, and not be a believer. You can be astonished by it, amazed by it, entertained by it. We can be awestruck by, by how meaningful his sayings are, by maybe the principles we could apply of the sayings to our life to make a difference. We could find his miracles dazzling and still not trust him for who he actually is. We can be into Jesus. We can be into church more for the entertainment value in some sense, more for the social value to get our spiritual needs met. And all the while, we can do it not actually entrusting our whole self to the person of Jesus. So faith is not astonishment. It's one thing we learn from this text. Faith is not amazement at Jesus. It's receiving who Jesus is. It's receiving who He is as He says He is, not who we want Him to be. One of the reasons why the Nazarenes are so stunned by Jesus is that, he, is that He's their hometown boy. This is their hometown guy. It's like our, our little Jesus, he's, he's back in town. He's, he's here and man, he's, he's changed. He's different. Remember that Jesus is from a rural community like us. He's not a city boy. Nazareth could have as many as 2,000 people at its highest population, but was probably more like 500 or so. So when you think of Nazareth, think Scotia. Think Scotia. Which, as of a few years ago, was around 800 people and was headed downward. And we're a part of the downward problem. Our family. We left. But the, uh, the preceding chapters of Matthew have been reporting that Jesus has been doing a lot of His ministry up in Capernaum. In verses 53 and 54, let us know that Jesus is left from there. That He's left from there and headed home. Which is about 20 miles away. The text doesn't tell us that, but it's about 20 miles away. So, again, thinking in local terms, it's about the distance between Eureka and Fortuna. About that. And Matthew tells us that Jesus teaches in the local synagogue. And it's likely that this was the synagogue that Jesus grew up in. So he returns to his place of worship that he attended, and this time he's the main speaker. The end of verse 54 through verse 56 gives voice to the townspeople, to what the townspeople thought of their returning hometown boy. The feeling is that most people knew him. It's obvious, by the way, that they're talking. But most people knew him and his family, and that they did not get what they were expecting from their guy. Instead, they got words of wisdom and miraculous works of power. So how could this be? To get the feel for the sentiment in the town toward Jesus, I think flip back to the Scotia comparison for a minute. It's like Joseph's family was seen at the black trains, playing around, having fun, playing tag. They were seen throwing rocks in the Eel River, maybe hanging out with other people, feeding the ducks in the pond, making snack runs to Hobie's. This is just kind of a, a familiarity. This is just life. This is Jesus and the family hanging out. And so the thought is, this, this kid, really that kid? That, this is what he's doing? This is what he's saying? 
Jesus wasn't trained, excuse me, as a rabbi. He was a carpenter's kid. He was a carpenter's kid. Research shows us that carpentry then would have consisted of building wooden furniture, would have build building them utensils, maybe even coffins, roof beams, door frames, and also it could have included masonry and also stonework. And carpentry would not have been a wealthy life, but it wasn't a bad way to make a living. His family life was the life of artisans, which were skilled workers. And so they were a step above the peasants of the day. It could be that Joseph was the only carpenter in town. Some of the ways it's talked about in other parts, it talks about the carpenter. And Jesus himself could have been doing carpentry, could have been doing that work of his father for about 20 years. He could have started at the age of 13. So he's been doing this a long time. He didn't start his ministry until his early 30s. So he's known. He's the carpenter. It's what he does. The way that people talk about his mom probably isn't nice. Notice how they name Mary, but they don't name Joseph. This could be because Joseph is actually dead. There's a lot of, well, there's some people that think that, that, that Joseph died um, during, during the life of Jesus. So he had to wrestle with that. His earthly dad. But it could also be because they viewed Mary as of questionable morality. The Gospels tell us that people had questioned his birth as an insult to his mom before. In the Gospel of John, you kind of get this sense from the religious leaders. So buzz in the town about Mary may have always had a little bit of a lingering gossiping tone behind it. Jesus. Interesting. How'd that happen? Jesus' many siblings are mentioned. So you can imagine being Jesus' brother or Jesus' sister. It would be difficult having a perfect brother around. But, again, as, as appearances would go, he's a normal kid, a normal guy. We know from Scripture that some of these siblings did not adopt the view of the hometown later in life. But eventually, the siblings put their faith in Jesus Christ, worshipped Jesus, worshipped their brother, that's interesting. It's wild to think that you can go from you know, wrestling your brother on the floor to one day actually worshiping him, trusting him, him dying for you. So the boys are named good old-fashioned Hebrew names. Nothing is said about them in particular. The girls don't get named at all. But they are mentioned to still be in the town at that time. When it says, are not all his sisters with us? Are not they with us? We know them. They're right here. So it could be that they married some of the other local guys in town. So again, the importance here is the familiarity of the town has with this family and that it makes Jesus' teachings and his aspects suspect. So to paraphrase a conversation after synagogue, it may have gone something like this. It may have gone, wow, that was, that was amazing. That was one heck of a sermon. But where did he get that kind of insight? He's not a rabbi. He didn't have that kind of training. And, and the miracles, that was, that was unbelievable seeing those mighty works. We've, we've been talking about these stories from Israel's past, from our past, but we've never seen something like this. But it's happening now, and it's happening from, from Jesus. The carpenters, the carpenter's kid is doing these miracles. Where did he get this authority from? Where does this power come from? It was just a few springs back that he 
fixed my roof. My daughter had a limp and he didn't heal my daughter. I talked to him about the Bible and I didn't get that kind of power. And this is Mary's, this is Mary's kid. She's really sweet and all, but I'm still not sure how that whole Joseph, Mary, and Jesus thing went down. I mean, wasn't she pregnant before they were even married? And those boys, Jim, Joe, Cy, and Jude, they were rambunctious. They were pretty crazy teenagers. And a sister, they've been here for years now, and they're probably always going to be here. They've married just the, um, the guys down at the local bank. Who does this Jesus think he is? Is he the Messiah? No way. This is Nazareth. It's, it's crazy to think that someone like that would come from a place like, like this. I don't, I don't actually really care what he says or what he does. He's more like me than he's like Moses. Something's not right. Where does he get this? I mean, who is he really? So maybe that's the kind of conversations that are going around. The message paraphrase sums the sentiment up of the town well when the last Eugene Peterson translates it. Who does he think he is? As the last statement, the townspeople. Who does he think he is? So this astonishment that we learn plays out as offense in their hearts. They're offended. Jesus was so ordinary, even average. So again, pause for a minute, reflect on that. If you are a believer today, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, as your, as your King, you and I worship that guy. That's who we worship. And I think when we look at it that way, it can be a little bit odd at times. Um, but I think this has something to say about the way in which we view Christianity. It's easy to forget where the incarnate Son of God came from in his earthly life. For 30 years, he was this guy. And I don't mean that he's a different guy, but I mean, I'm just trying to get, help us to, to feel that, to see that. Nothing too extraordinary about him. And I think it's important for us because sometimes we think faith is all about the extraordinary. When the life of faith in Jesus, this Jesus, who swings a hammer, who goes to work, who deals with siblings, who lives with mom and dad, and eventually goes out on his own, that, that that's part of spiritual life. That's part of spiritual life. It's changing diapers, taking out the trash. It's doing mac and cheese in a box when the kids are going crazy and you're utterly exhausted. One scholar noted, Nazareth's mistake is not that he thinks... <clears throat> Let me get this right. Nazareth's mistake is not that he thinks Jesus is... One second here. Let me try to say this right. It's that they, he's trying to say, because I wrote it down wrong, he's, he's trying to say that, that Jesus looks too human, that Jesus is too human to be the Messiah. He's too human. He's too much like us. And so we need to be reminded of the humanity of Jesus Christ, of the humanity of Jesus Christ. We worship a man, the God-man, but a man. And does that offend you? Does the mannishness of Jesus offend you? And again, to make this clear, Jesus, he had bad breath, he had snot, he snored, he pooped, he peed, he smelled, he got upset, he was hungry, he did all of those things, all of those raw human things Jesus did. 
And this humanity for the early church was actually a big problem because they wanted something more spiritual. They wanted something more flashy and less fleshy. It wasn't showy enough that God would become a man. And in some ways, we all want this. Sometimes we act as if true spiritual life is prayer meetings. It's this. This is just true spiritual life. It's somebody getting up and giving a sermon. It's listening and then going home. And that's the spiritual section of the day. It's devotions in the morning. When it's not that alone, it's eating, it's drinking, it's long conversations, it's, it's our job, it's how we treat each other after a sleepless night and a bad day. Again, Eugene Peterson, he puts it so well, and this isn't in the message, but he says, we don't become more spiritual by becoming less human. We don't become more spiritual by becoming less human. So what's playing out here in Nazareth is that the parables that Jesus had spoken of in Capernaum in the verses that come before are coming true. The kingdom starts out like a small mustard seed or like a little bit of leaven hiding in a bunch of flour. That it has insignificant beginnings. God was working out His extraordinary plan for the world from an ordinary and an insignificant place. He was doing it in Jesus of Nazareth. And no one then was expecting God to do it that way. What He said and what He did in their synagogue... Well, really the fact that someone like them said and did that in their synagogue is outside the borders of their religious expectation. They were expecting a towering, heroic, messianic figure to arrive that again would visibly kick out the oppressive Gentiles. They weren't expecting it to be the carpenter from their town. That was a scandalous thought. It was scandalous. That's what the word offense means in verse 57. That's what the word offense means. The response to Jesus of amazement became what they tripped and fell over. They didn't see it coming, so they rejected who He was. And that's what this is. Oftentimes we interpret offense in the Bible like it's reflecting the feelings we have when someone rearranges the sanctuary. Or like it's somebody drinking a beer somewhere. Or, or somebody... Ignoring me at church. I'm so offended. I'm so hurt. And all those could be justified for different reasons. But that's not this offense. Offense in the Bible is a scandal. It's a stumbling block. It's a, it's a, loss, of, it's a loss of faith. faith. They are, their hearts are, are scandalized in such a way that they refuse to believe the message that he is bringing. So that their hearts turn against him. Instead of the ESVs, they took offense at him. The Revised English Bible says they turned against him. So in other words, they had committed the insidious evil of unbelief toward Jesus. And so this, this whole context, this whole picture is critical to understand what's coming up at the conclusion of the paragraph. The unbelief of the Nazarenes results from their questions about the source of Jesus' insight and power as well as the questions about who he actually was and his identity. While they are astonished at the things he says and does, they doubt something about who he actually is. They're fine with him being a Nazarene carpenter, but they don't want him to be the prophet, the anointed one of God. He's not welcomed there. He's not honored by them as who he actually is. They want their old Jesus, at least their perceptions of him, back. And Jesus doesn't entertain their offenses. He doesn't give him anything for that. He doesn't pat him on the back. 
and gets sensitive with them. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. So again, he's insinuating, I'm a prophet. And he doesn't come right out and say all that he is, but he identifies himself as the messenger of God. And it could be that this actually plays out in Luke 4, where Jesus preaches in his hometown, very similar things are said, and he reads Isaiah, and he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So basically he said, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one who was prophesied, and then they want to kill him. So, he says, you're not honoring me. You've disregarded me. I'm putting myself in a role higher than you think I should be. Matthew actually uses the word prophet more than any other book in the New Testament. And it's not surprising because it's written primarily for a Jewish audience and it's aiming to show Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel. So though Jesus doesn't come right out and say it here, not only is he a little p prophet like Moses and Elijah that show up on a mountain pretty soon on the transfiguration, but that he's the capital P prophet, that he is God's own son, the word of God. So Jesus is being rejected by his own town like the people of God have been rejecting their prophets for many generations. The same story is playing out, is being rehearsed. So Jesus doesn't remove the offense in their hearts, but says something that would drive it deeper, fully revealing their wicked unbelief. The generation of Jesus' day is like the generation of Moses' day. They have the promise right in front of them, but they won't believe it, take it, and receive it. The Hebrews verses that we read are referring to Numbers chapter 14 and how the people of Israel were refusing to heed the message of Caleb to go occupy the land that God had promised them. Look at Numbers 14. Numbers 14. I'm just going to skip around here for a second so we can see this. Caleb basically talks, says, let's go up and occupy it. They're afraid. The Nephilim are there. Um, The sons of Anak. We're grasshoppers. We're tiny. We can't go do this. Numbers 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Skip down to 11 and 12. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than than they. Go down to 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and all your number listed in the census from 21 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. 
But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in. and They shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who were gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. Heavy. Heavy stuff. The way that God confronts them for their grumbling, faithless, unbelieving heart. Just as the people don't believe the word from God to Moses or the miraculous signs of God at the hands of Moses, so too does Nazareth reject the word and miracles from the mouth and the hands of Jesus. They are just like their faithless, unbelieving, grumbling fathers. Wicked. Their lack of faith is so ugly, not because faith per se is so noble, but because the object of faith is so great. Jesus is there, the one, the prophet. Responding with unbelief to the person of Jesus cuts us off from the benefits he provides. The role of the people's faith in the last verse in chapter 13 needs to be understood in the context of all of this. It's passages like the one we face today that can really mess people up. And it's particularly this verse. Matthew 13, 58. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So the misconceptions and misuse of this verse can the misconceptions and misuse of this verse can be detrimental to our view of God and our view of ourselves. And I think that comes in two directions. That it can lead us to believe that there is a power in faith that is not connected to Jesus, who's faith's object, or it can lead us to minimize the necessity of faith in response to Jesus. And we don't want to fall in either camp as a church or as a people. Some of us can read verses like this and be thinking, is that why I'm not healed? Is that why... My body continues to ache. Is that why I'm facing a bad diagnosis? Do I not have enough faith? And so we need to be clear that the problem in this text is not enough faith in Jesus, but the problem is absence of faith in Jesus. There is none. So don't hear unbelief as having doubts. The unbelief of the Nazarenes is filled with skepticism and scoffing that leads to a denial of who Jesus is. It's a total rejection of Him. Therefore, this verse should not be used to justify a view of God that says He doesn't do miracles for you because your faith isn't big enough. That's not the point of this verse. The point is, Jesus only does a few mighty works there because they've rejected Him, because they've turned from Him. It isn't that Jesus would have done more miracles in his hometown if they could muster up 75% faith and only 25% of unbelief. It isn't like a scale. It's because they 100% rejected 
the life, message, and mission of Jesus. And so notice how the context of these verses are not just about the relationship of faith to Jesus' working of miracles, but the relationship of faith to the person of Jesus himself. The problem wasn't that they didn't believe that Jesus could do mighty works. They just saw them. They just saw the mighty works. Not like, oh, oh man, I don't, I don't know that God can heal me. Um, so, okay, God just doesn't heal you. Uh, it's, 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 it's an attack on his person and his character. Unbelief is. The problem was that they believed Jesus wasn't anything more than regular people just like themselves who had picked up some questionable power and insight somewhere. It wasn't that they needed a more potent, enchanted amulet, some special power to unlock the magic of Jesus. They needed to trust Him as He said He was. Of course He didn't do many mighty works there. They didn't want Him there. They didn't want Him there as He was. So we can love miracles. We can love amazing sermons or teachings. But if we don't love the person, we don't get the benefits of the person. If you reject Jesus, you shouldn't expect any miracles from Him. Obviously, the greatest miracle of salvation you will not receive. If you reject Jesus, you're rejecting your eternal salvation and any blessings of the kingdom that come from His rule and reign. And so, again, there's this sense of sneering in the hometown crowd. The New Living Translation frames their reply as scoffing. It says they scoffed and then said their big list of things that they said. So there's, like, so there's a self-righteousness to their unbelief. And usually we think of self-righteousness as a moralistic thing as I'm self-righteous, because I'm not like that person. I I don't do that stuff. But there's a self-righteousness that actually reveals itself by being so proud you don't embrace something that's so wonderful. That Jesus' pedigree isn't good enough. He was just like them with some extra power and maybe a little bit of narcissism, so they weren't into Him. They didn't see themselves as needy people that only Jesus could fill. They saw themselves as enough without him. And so this is opposite to what we've been learning about the nature of faith again in all the chapters that have come before. Think about think about these models of faith, if that's what we want to call them. Models of faith. They're not really models at all. They're they're helpless people, they're powerless people that go to Jesus for help. That's what they are. We we had an outcast, we had a leper who was cut off from participating in religious practices, who was removed from society, who came to Jesus in desperation, knowing that if if it was Jesus' will, he'd be healed. That's faith. Jesus healed him. We had a Gentile Roman centurion concerned for his paralyzed servant. We had him go to Jesus for healing with a sense of his own unworthiness. No, don't even come under my house. I'm too unworthy for that. Just say it. Just say it. And Jesus does a long-range healing. He's healed. Faith in Jesus. We had a religiously unclean woman with a female health problem pressing through a massive crowd of people knowing that if she just touched a piece of His garment that she'd be healed. She was. She was healed. Your faith has made you well. So while the Nazarenes whisper and scoff, these people, these people before, knew their desperation and knew that Jesus alone could help them. 
So seeing their faith in Him, Jesus responds with saving grace. So faith is a big deal to Jesus. We can't minimize faith. But it isn't a, a, an inner superpower. It's not even a work. It's, it's receiving the gift of who He is. So saving faith is born out of a place of stark need. It doesn't ignore the need, but it doesn't get immobilized by the need. It looks away from one's circumstances and one's own self and looks to someone else for help. That's what faith does. It moves outward instead of inward. Faith receives who Jesus is as one's only hope. And this is why faith looks nothing like self-pity. This is one of my favorite sins. And I really mean that because I struggle with it a lot. It's not attractive. Not the most attractive attribute. But self-pity is a sin. And it can disguise itself as a kind of spiritual faith because you're locked into your own issues or your own circumstances or your own sins and it immobilizes you. It's just looking inward. It's, it, it's being stuck. And these people earlier in Matthew had every single reason to be stuck with where they were at. And they weren't. They pressed on. If, you're, if it's your will, you'll heal me. I'm going to press in. I just, want to, I just want to touch your garment and I'll be healed. Don't even come to my house. But I'm still coming to you. I'm still coming to you. I'm saying, heal my paralyzed servant and he's healed. So faith is something different than that. It's not just a preoccupation with sin in your circumstances. It's getting outside of yourself and going to Jesus. It's not righteous to focus on your sins and your bad circumstances with a woe-is-me attitude and even cloaked with spiritual terms. That's unrighteous. Faith is righteous. The righteous live by faith. It looks away to the object. It looks away to somebody else. It isn't being stuck. Self-pity intoxicates me with my own issues. Faith sobers us up to actually look out, to look out and go to Jesus for help. Faith recognizes one's powerlessness, so it does see it, but then it, again, it moves. It goes to the one who's powerful. It says, I need you. Help me. I believe you. So today, today, let's not be like the unbelieving in whatever form that takes for you, whether it's a self-righteousness, whether it's a self-pitying, whether it's being, being stuck, but let's be people of faith relentlessly focused on who Jesus is as He says He is. And the one thing that He is, is gracious. Jesus is gracious. We see that in this text. It's in that word, many. He, d- he didn't do many miracles. He did some. Jesus did some miracles. His goodness, the goodness of Jesus Christ, the graciousness of Him leaks in a dry place. In an atmosphere of unbelief, Jesus still acts. Jesus' response to Nazareth for unbelief is not no miracles whatsoever. I know how you people are going to (laughs) be. But some. He's more gracious than we are. And Nazareth isn't the only place that Jesus is perceived as average and humble. It's not the only place that may reveal His humility, His humble circumstances. Jesus takes us even further to Calvary. He comes in weakness and He dies in weakness. 
Where unbelief takes offense to the weakness of Jesus, faith sees this supposed weakness as the very wisdom of God, as good news. Instead of hanging wooden beams as a carpenter fixing up a house, Jesus was hung, he was suspended, he was nailed to wooden beams to save sinners. The Son of God came to earth as the Son of Mary to make many sons of God. God became flesh to save wicked people. Jesus, he's our older brother. Jesus is our older brother who defeated the enemies we couldn't defeat. Death will beat us in one sense. We'll die if Jesus doesn't come again. But Jesus makes death die. That's why he died. Jesus overthrows Satan and the work of blinding the eyes of unbelievers so that the ones who were stuck in their wickedness would believe. He overthrows the power of Satan. Jesus at the cross forgives the self-righteous, forgives self-pitying sinners like you and me by dying in the place we should have been. Like His sisters made their home in Nazareth, Jesus made His home with us, with people like us. He left His home, made His home with us. The mightiest work Jesus ever did was the work of redemption that you and I could never achieve for ourselves. So look to Him. If we just look to Him, if we get out of ourselves, recognize our junk, and then look to Him, we'll be saved. So by faith, right now, this is what we do. We look away from this week. We look away from ourselves. We look to the body and blood of Jesus Christ who bled and died and rose again so that unbelievers, so that those people stuck in their wickedness and sin might believe. He gave Himself for everyone who would look to Him and believe. That's what we're going to do when we take communion. Think about that.